This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this screen show on ABC Radio National. I'm Jason DeRosso. Today, a conversation about one of Australia's finest screen actors who hasn't been in great health of late, David Gulpilil. I don't have to go and act. I just jump in and stand there and a camera sees me. I'll be speaking about him with the director of a new documentary about him releasing in cinemas this week. The documentary is called My Name is Gulpilil and it's a film that takes us into the life of the actor, dancer and artist as he copes with gruelling cancer treatment in his home in Murray Bridge, about 70 kilometres north of Adelaide. The film is full of reminiscences about his life and career, a career which began when he was a teenager living in Arnhem Land, scouted by director Nicholas Rogue for the 1971 film Walkabout. From that striking, unique screen debut, Gulpilil has played an irreplaceable role in some of the finest films made in this country. After Walkabout, he went on to work on Storm Boy and Mad Dog Morgan, starring opposite Dennis Hopper, through to Rabbit Proof Fence and The Tracker. The director of this documentary, Molly Reynolds, is a friend and colleague. She and her partner, filmmaker Rolf Dahir, have both worked with Gulpilil many times. Dahir, of course, directed The Tracker. And so there's an intimate, up-close quality to this film that transmits Gulpilil's charisma and intelligence even as he's battling the enormous health challenges that he's facing at the moment. It's on record that Gulpilil notoriously can be difficult to work with and his failings are well-documented domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse. This film finds him in a reflective mood and I was very curious to find out the story behind it. Molly Reynolds is coming up. My acting experience is just natural. The same like going hunting and fishing, you know. It's the natural things. Acting is just like dancing. I mean, it's dancing and acting is uh, the relationship, you know. I mean, to me, it's easy. I mean, to me, it's not very hard to do it. Well, Molly Reynolds, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Tell me, how did you get David Gulpilil to agree to this? Or was it his idea? Was it yours? Was it his? Was it a collaboration? Look, it was a collaborative thing. Um, David, when he was, you know, he had his grim prognosis of, look, David Gulpilil, your lung cancer is so widespread that you're not going to see in 2018. Rolf here, one of the producers and David's sort of long-standing collaborators and I went to visit David in Murray Bridge. David was very, aside from being shocked, you know, he, he, he wished for a distraction. He said, what I want to do is work. Brother, sister, can I work? You know, how to find a way for David to work was sort of was challenging on every level. Who was going to cast him in a film? Um, he, after all, was a dying man. Then I suppose he could play a dying man. So, there, you know, therefore, why not make 
the final documentary, the documentary in which David would return to country. Um, we would film his death ceremonies. We would, you know, it would be the complete documentary. And so we we embarked on, on that together and it was quite easy to find investors. Um, most films are very challenging, but David Gulpalil is kind of like a beacon, really. And we began in making this and then David survived 2018 2019, 2020, and we said enough already. Why don't we celebrate you, David, and you can be on stage and we'll finish your your film here and now. And David was most delighted with that. So here we are. Yes, he has defied that terrible prognosis and survived perhaps longer than the doctors thought he might. This interview is going to air this week. How is he? For someone who was not meant to see in 2018, he's doing very, very well. Having said that, he rests a lot. I, you know, um, 16 hours out of every 24, he's he's resting, um, you know, sort of the quiet life. To give him enough energy to go, you know, to the Murray River, have his fish, feed the chips to the birds. Um, he still likes to go driving. Um, he's okay, yeah. Look, your film begins with all these close-ups, moments from his wonderful career, uh, moments from so many iconic films. We're talking about, you know, his beginning with Walkabout, there's Mad Dog Morgan, Storm Boy, The Last Wave. We get up to The Tracker and Rabbit Proof Fence, so many wonderful films. But you begin with some, I think, key close-ups from a few of those. And it struck me that if there is a shot that's emblematic of his talent and his hard to define his almost ephemeral but very magnetic screen presence it's the close-up but not the three-quarter not the profile but the front-on close-up him approaching camera he just transfixes you how would you describe his qualities as an actor and that screen presence that I think is one of the hardest questions because if we knew what it was, what his allure was, what, where his charisma and his magnetism came from, I think we'd all want to bottle it, you know. It is worth so much. Um, and I think that David knows the value of it. He always leaves us with wanting more. So I think he has that elusive, um, mesmerizing quality to him that he knows he knows how to distribute it like magic. So the very, very short answer to that, Jason, is I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's clearly instinct on some level too, but he developed very quickly, I guess working under Nicholas Rogue in, in Walkabout, the skills that were able to channel that great raw talent. And he knows technically what to do with it. Oh, absolutely. I think there's, um, having watched Walkabout recently and, and enough times, I think where David is, is compelling in that film is his sort of physicality as an actor and as, as an actor, as a hunter and a dancer. And he's not yet sort of evolved that into him as an actor. Um, the, you know, the acting component came later. But he, he, he certainly had a quality then, but I think he, he learnt how to sort of bring it into his, all his being, into his complete physicality. Yeah, when did he learn that, do you think? At what point in his body of work do you think does he become an actor that 
has mastered that close-up or that mid-shot and that facial power that he has. Very quickly, I think Stormboy would perhaps be this um, because, you know, he made Walkabout when he was 14. He toured with it when he was 16. During that time, he met celebrities, you know. He met Her Majesty, the Queen of England, and I always love the way he says that. says that. It's never Her Majesty, never the Queen or the Queen of England, but Her Majesty, the Queen of England. And people like, like John Lennon and Muhammad Ali and Jimi Hendrix and Bob Marley and Clint Eastwood. And you think about all these people, and these people, they have charisma themselves and I think to be catapulted into that orbit I think David got it really quickly you know he was learning English in real time and he was learning what it was to have a presence in real time so I think Stormboy was the film in which any Australian who saw it fell in love with David. He has a strong sense of his abilities as an actor but he also beyond that he has a strong sense of his own story of course and his importance. Define what that importance is. Uh, David has an incredibly robust sense of self and I actually find it really refreshing. You know, I do wonder how it works within him. You know, this sense of I am the best, I am the greatest. He does everything, especially um, when he's working, from that base. As he says in the film, the camera just sees me. And that the camera just sees him, I think, comes from his confidence of himself, you know, his sense that he is um, the best and he is without peer. Is there a, a lot of narcissism in that? I think historically, perhaps, yes. Um, I know David best as um, in his twilight years when we started to make, you know, this documentary together. And just before we started, because he, he, he drank alcohol to excess all his life, you know, he smoked a, you know, a lot of cigarettes and a lot of ganja, as he calls marijuana. And so he'd given that up. And, the time, you know, the person I spent time with I felt was very much the person he was before our culture corrupted him because the footage of him as a young man, he really comes across as very sweet, very naive, very wide-eyed at the world. So that narcissism, I dare say, was there at, at times. I think it could make him very difficult, um, very mercurial. But a lot of that has dissipated now. On ABC Radio National, you're listening to The Screen Show. I'm speaking to Molly Reynolds, who is the director of a wonderful new documentary about one of our best screen actors, David Gulpalil. It's called My Name is Gulpalil. Molly, David currently lives with a woman named Mary. Tell me about Mary. I think the best way to sum up Mary is that David would be dead if it were not for her. She signed up to be his carer for a lot shorter period than she has, you know. Everybody thought it may be over a period of six months. It's now four years later. And she has a very challenging patient. David is not easy. Um, and the moment Mary moves out of his visual orbit, you know, he starts clambering her name. Mary, Mary, where are you? They began their relationship as flatmates many 
many years ago in Darwin. David was with a woman, Miriam, at the time, and she was connected to his mob. She had friendships and relationships there. And then she said, thought, I've had enough of the NT. I'm going to return back to South Australia. And David, to her surprise, said, I'm coming with you. And I think Mary said, that's not quite my plan. But I think he found a stable life living with her, that there was a certain routine there. So David came down, but he was quite restless because you know, Murray Bridge is not his country at all. So he'd hightail it up to Darwin and to Broome a fair bit. But then I think, you know, as he became unwell, he settled down a little bit. And then there was a point at which I think he felt so unwell that, it, you know, as he speaks to in the doctor, he said, Ballander, you white woman, take me to the doctors. And that's that's when they diagnosed him with his cancer. Was it a juggle for you to decide how much to depict of their relationship because you don't go into it too much in the film and I'm wondering about that decision why you didn't go and explore that further was it a case of where you wanted the focus to be yes yes it was that I mean this is David by David for David you know he holds the screen um is he a co-director do you think I mean he hasn't got that credit uh, as far as I know but is there almost that sort of influence or a sort of producing influence on the Um, film? Yes, it's all David, really. Um, Dave, it was an interesting experience for me working with David because as a documentary maker, I take my talent as they come. And David is really, is one of the most professional actors I've encountered, especially, you know, when in a state of sobriety. And David really likes to give his his very best and he depends on a director to do that for him. So we quickly settled into a routine with our 67 shoot days of me spending time with David beforehand. And I did, and I had a checklist to which I'd say, David, this is this is what we need to to sign off. These are the the, the critical things I need in order to be able to craft the documentary. Which one would you deal, like to deal with today? Um, and then as we, you know, sort of finished that checklist, we were able to bring um, other things, you know, on, onto the table. And so we'd spend time discussing it and David would kind of download to me so that when he was speaking to camera, I could cue him in, you know, I could kind of prompt him because David's memory has been shot for a long, long time. He, it's a curious memory. He can remember what he had for breakfast when he shot certain scenes in the tracker, but he can't remember a single line from the tracker. So, you know, that's yeah. sort of the way David's memory works. Um, Gee, I'm, glad, so you, I'm he, glad you had that scene in the tracker, which I think is one of the best scenes of recent Australian cinema of that laugh between oh, Gary yeah. Sweet and him, David Galpalil. David has a chain around his neck, of course, and Gary Sweet is, you know, playing the master there and he's on the horse and he's just told him he'll hang. And the two look at each other and they have this, they just break out laughing. It's a moment full of ambiguity, but it's also full of deep truths, I think, about the perverse nature of this master-slave, I suppose you could say, uh, relationship. Yeah. And, and always and how complicit they are with one another. They both need one another in that perverse relationship that they can't, you know, they can't cut each other loose. They're connected as much as they 
loathe one another, um, they can't escape each other. But it's the, it's think- the laugh. I mean, because uh, what brought it to mind, I think, was when you were talking about lines and I thought, you know, it's, it's one of the best moments. What's well, the best moment in the film for me in a way? And and there's no line, but it's the laugh, uh, yeah. And it's just so perverse and so deep and disturbing in so many ways. Um, but I want to go back to this idea of, of I guess David and notions of I guess authorized biography and so forth, which I'm sure you're grappling with and wondering about as you're making this film. Uh, he has this strong sense of his own story and his place in history. He has a checkered past, of course, which you briefly talk about or mention in the film alcoholism drug abuse we've already spoken about he was convicted of domestic violence of course did he make any demands on you when it came to how you were to mention or depict his dark side no 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 i think david is remarkable in the access that he allows he he gives the camera you know at some points he can be consumed by something like let's say weariness where he says enough already but he never his starting place is never to say I don't want to do this. He'll sort of, he'll always start, but then he'll, he'll say, I've had, had enough. Um, I think that when it came to dealing with, you know, with his declaration that he's a drug and alcoholic, it was where I said, David, we've got to deal with it. And from his perspective, he was like, well, why should I, you know, revisit that shame and, you know, sort of bring it on, on myself? And I'm sort of saying, no, 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 David, you're thinking black fell away. This is, this is white fell away. We need to know, you know, the best, the best of the times and the worst of the times because otherwise one doesn't mean much without the other. He appreciated that and did speak to it. So it, it sort of sits in there as almost as David would recollect it because the nature of this documentary is as though um, we, our starting point was, okay, if we're at the, at the end of our lives and, um, and we're, we're sort of lying on our deathbed, so to speak, how would we reflect back on our lives? And it would come in bits and pieces, you know, sort of fragments from here and there. And, you know, you'd kind of find the relationships between them, moments in in one's life. So this is the way we, you know, created the documentary was sort of how David saw the world. And that's why it has that element of surrealism to it, because David's life has been quite surreal. So rather than choosing to speak to things or not, it was kind of more, you know, how is David reflecting on, you know, upon the life he he lived? Yeah, and therefore I guess that goes into this isn't the sort of documentary where you were setting out to then interview people who knew him necessarily or go, yeah, it's a close-up on him. Yeah, exactly. You know, as a filmmaker, um, I um, I thought, how am I going to do this differently? How am I going to challenge form, to progress it from my place as a filmmaker? And, um, you know, I made the decision that, that it would be all David, that David would tell us how he's lived his life, um, how he feels about life, what are his thoughts on living and death, what are the thoughts on the films he's he's made. And it was a bold decision, but then it going full circle here, it was on the, you know, at the same time quite an easy decision to make because David has that charisma, he has that allure. Are you happy with what you got in the end? I mean, in terms of his ability to 
and I don't want to spend too much time, much more time on this point, but his ability to reflect on his mistakes. You do mention, and I think there's a sequence where we see the court appearances and we get the domestic violence story. It's not dismissed. It's there. But certainly he doesn't go into it much and there's not a lot of talk about fatherhood or previous relationships. Were you happy with what you were able to get? Yes. Yes, I was. I think most most documentary makers would agree with me. You kind of, one's always agitating for more. Um, you almost can never, ever have enough to work with. But yes, every, every shooting day with David, it's bar one. And I remember, I don't actually remember which day it was. I just remember the shoot day is memorable because I thought, oh, we've got nothing here. But David would always put, you know, just kind of, you know, hand over a nugget of gold um, where I thought, oh, how, how wonderful. Um, I think um, if, if I look at the, the whole of work, yes, it speaks to David as he sees himself, as he thinks of himself. And so in that, in that perspective, I can only be pleased with it. I know that David is like, yep, that's me. You know, it couldn't be anything else. And so but if he's happy, I'm happy. Just going on that notion of happiness, I was wondering about this and thinking, how does he view his story, do you think? I mean, I, I like the way the film, I think, leaves you to a certain degree wondering and you come out a lot more educated than you are at the beginning. But do you think he views it as a, is it a happy story? Is it a sad story? How would he describe his character arc, if I'm to use that awful term? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think he would say it was a little bit of everything um, because we certainly do get the many moods of David, you know. We have him weeping, we have him laughing, we have the whole gamut of emotions there. Yes, David reflecting upon himself is, 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 quite, is, is, is always kind of going to be quite complicated because there's that, you know, he's so self-assured. You know, he has that, I'm the greatest dancer in the world, he says. And then he qualifies that with just for me. And I kind of, I love the boldness of the statement and I also love the, the qualification of it because it's right. You know, as long as we feel right about ourselves, then what others think about us don't matter. So, you know, I can kind of think, yes, I'm the world's greatest documentary maker or you're, you know, the, the world's greatest. Uh, film and TV interviewer, but it doesn't really matter whether you are or not, but that you think you are is what makes you good at what you do, I the, suppose. There's a rock in the middle of him, I think, that's that's unmovable and sort of unshakable. There's a bedrock there that I think is a healthy ego, and despite his demons, I think that, that remains... Um, there are a couple of moments in this documentary where we do see David being, I suppose you could describe it as being difficult on set. Uh, in one case, he's having a heated exchange with your partner, Rolf Tahir. Uh, I'm not sure on what film. And in another case, I couldn't recognise who the person was, but it, it might have been an assistant director, but there was someone else sort of having an argument with him. But there's a, a moment where he storms off. This, this is all archival footage. It's fair to say, I think, Golpalil, as great as he is as a screen actor, developed a bit of a reputation for being difficult on set. Am I right? Oh, difficult on, on set, difficult full stop. Um, you know, it was one of these things when embarking on the documentary, I kind of I took a deep breath and I thought, do I really want to do this? Because David 
can be so difficult and so mercurial and just plain horrible. Um, and then I, I sort of paused and I thought, okay, you know, from the comfort of, you know, as a white fella, you know, in the dominant culture, I have an obligation to do this and I think I can I can do it quite well. And I'm sort of very relieved that I didn't have to deal with that, David. I knew that Rolf was quite... Um, quite traumatised by the experience of working with David on Charlie's Country just because David was, you know, he could be so difficult. He could, you know, he could have the, the crew standing around all morning. Um, was that I the, but did he become difficult because of the drugs, do you think, and the alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I came to recognise that I did that it would bring on a a sort of a paranoid schizophrenia. I mean, you're look, looking at someone who could easily chuff through half a bag of marijuana in a day and not just, you know, this was just not a recreational Sunday thing. This could be day after day after day. And in some way he would do that to calm his mind, but at the same time it would also trip his mind. Yeah, he could yell and scream. He could take on people randomly. Yes, he was difficult, and I think that's partly why he didn't have his um, his first lead role until Rolf cast him in, in the tracker, and that was very much mid-career. Yeah, it, it, why he was homeless and lived in the long grass, as they, as they say in Darwin. Yeah, it's why he's had the highs and lows that he's had. Yes, well, I'm very conscious of the fact that obviously we're two white fellas talking about this and you'd be the first also to admit that, and I think your film represents this fact that there are so many broader issues that go into the troubles that filled so much of David Gulpalil's head for so many years and you get him on occasion in this film, reflecting on that, of course. Yeah, and the the thing is, Jason, for me that the most unexpected, well, there were two unexpected things in this four-year journey that I went on. One of them was that David, he went past his six-month prognosis and is, is still amongst the living. And the other one was that I came to love David over time, you know, because we had always had this relationship of regard, but from a distant perspective. and Because you um, were producing and co-writing some of these films directed yes. by Rolf Dahir, yep. your partner, but, but it was an arm's length thing, yes. I guess, relationship. Yeah. And, you and weren't Dave, on set directing him, yeah. Yeah, Dave, um, David and uh, David was the narrator in another country, um, a documentary made back circa 2016. Um, yeah, so I think, um, you know, and that the unexpected thing of all that was that I developed a, a real affection for David. I did come to love him because there was none of that, that previous behaviour and it was more the stuff of him, you know, as someone in his late teens or early 20s. There was more of the sort of storm boy David than there was of the mad dog Morgan David. Yes, um, and th just another great story, that one that he tells himself about. Uh, it, it didn't turn out to be too good for him um, hanging out with Dennis Hopper, talking about mercurial performers on that film. David speaks about that experience with quite a lot of insight and um, self-awareness, I think. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Molly, for um, <laughs> talking to us and, and drawing back the curtain a little bit on the process behind making this documentary. Thank you. Thank you. That's Molly Reynolds, the director of the documentary My Name is Gulpalil, 
which is screening around the country this week. You're listening to The Screen Show. My name's Jason DeRosso. My name is Galpalil. You know what's that mean? Kingfisher. That's my name. That's my totem. That's what I sing. That's what I believe. On ABC Radio National, you're listening to The Screen Show. My name is Jason DeRosso. American filmmaker James Benning is one of the most respected and prolific avant-garde filmmakers working in the world today. Trained as a mathematician, largely self-taught behind the camera and influenced by the structural filmmakers of the 60s and 70s who turned their back on narrative to explore the aesthetic possibilities of form and abstraction. Benning's films are often made according to rigorous parameters of duration and method. But, as my next guest explains, Benning's films also contain recurring themes which have to do with land and land use, politics, class and race. And there are some jokes embedded in the movies as well. Erica Balsam is a film scholar and critic at King's College London, and she is the author of a beautifully written, fascinating new book released by the Melbourne and Berlin-based publishing house Fireflies Press a book about Benning's 2004 film, Ten Skies, the second in a series of monographs, by the way, dedicated to 10 films from the 2000s that Fireflies are releasing. You might remember I interviewed Nick Pinkerton, who wrote the first of this series a few weeks back. Now, as the title suggests, Ten Skies is a film consisting of 10 shots of the sky, each of around 10 minutes duration, or the time it takes for a single 400-foot mag of 16mm film to roll through a camera. You can see the film and a few others of Benning's for yourself if you're in Melbourne at upcoming screenings in June. But now it's time for me to introduce to you Erica Balsam, who's here to tell us so much more than my bare-bones description of Ten Skies uh, suggests. Welcome, Erica. Hi, thank you. Now, it's a deceptively simple work, and I want to start with a a simple question that's perhaps deceptively simple. How long did it take James Benning to complete this film? Apparently about a year and a half. I mean, there's a sense that one might think, oh, yeah, he just went out and every day shot the sky. But in fact, nothing could be further from the case. He actually said to me that you know, there are never any good skies in Southern California where he lives. And of course, the sky is always there, um, but not the way he was looking for. And so there is a sense these are not just any 10 skies. They are very judiciously chosen and very expertly composed. So there's a real attention to qualities of light, movement, color. Um, it's absolutely not something that, you know, we could just go out and remake if we wanted to. Yeah, they struck me as, I mean, if there was a, such a thing as a 10-minute long GIF, that they almost resemble these 10-minute long GIFs of, of sections of sky taken from, say, a Turner painting or something, but all different Turner paintings, and they slowly move with the wind and so forth. And, and I really love that moment in the book where Benning relates the inspiration for this film as being partly about that universal human moment we all have when we lay on our backs as children probably and we look at the sky. And and that is in part at least the first impression of what this film is doing. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about first impressions and then 
all the layers that that you've discovered as you've sort of seen this film multiple times and researched its making. But that first impression did seduce you, didn't it? It's quite sublime. Yeah. And I mean, it really inspires this tremendous sense of wonder. And I think that the comparison to the child, you know, lying and looking at the sky is a great one because there's something so profoundly democratic about that. And I think that that's true also of this film. You know, avant-garde cinema sometimes has this reputation for difficulty or elitism. And I think that that's kind of a misrecognition sometimes of what these films are doing. And I think Ten Skies really gets us to that by thinking about our relation to the world in a way that's very everyday and very simple, but also then absolutely anything but. Yeah, I was, I mean, the first sort of wow moment for me was when you talk about, I think it's the second frame, um, but correct me if I'm wrong there, and and you reveal that what we're seeing is not a cloud, in fact. Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. So this is the second shot of the film, and it actually is a kind of brush fire, forest fire happening close to CalArts, which is the um, art college where Benning has taught for many years. Um, And, you know, one could say, well, how could you know that unless you were told? In fact, I think watching it for 10 minutes, you do realize this is not just a cloud that you would see in the sky. There's a kind of acrid gray, yellow kind of palette that really tells us that what we're looking at is smoke. And of course, then, you know, you're sitting there and you're watching this for 10 minutes. And then you start to think about California and climate change and drought and fire and air quality and all of these things. Um, And, you know, maybe that's a stretch, but then also not when we understand that Benning, as you said, is someone who has for decades thought about these questions of land use, pollution, industrialization. And so the film is really in a very kind of gentle way, inviting us into a kind of time when we can allow ourselves to sort of follow our thoughts wherever they may go. Because, I mean, I think what's really interesting about this film, you know, seeing it initially, you're inclined to think, wow, this is James Benning at a filmmaker who has made so many meditative, slow, but ultimately cumulatively very moving films about landscapes and people working in fields and and then urbanscapes and so forth. Anyway, he's been very sort of earthbound. And here he is abandoning the earth. And you're kind of thinking for a moment, is he abandoning his concerns that relate to life on earth? But of course, your book, one of the interesting things about it is that it talks about how he's not at all and and that there is always, both on the soundtrack but also in the types of cloud formations we're seeing, this notion of, and in the juxtaposition, I guess, this notion of the earthly. Um, maybe mm-hmm. can you expand upon that? So the idea that he might be kind of abandoning the earth and also abandoning a set of more political concerns, perhaps. That, in fact, more or less was my impression of the film when I first saw it. I saw it at a time when I had not seen many of Benning's other, perhaps more explicitly political works, like, for instance, American Dreams Lost and Found, which to me is an immensely important film. Um, And so I saw this and I thought, wow, this is like an amazing formalist 
exercise, you know, in a kind of weird meeting of minimalism and maximalism, and really about light and movement and time. Um, and then as time went on, and I began to think more about the film and also learn more about the rest of Benning's work, I realized that this was in fact, you know, a complete misapprehension of the film. I mean, it's fine, one could watch it that way, um, but there's so much else that's going on. And so I think that the simplicity of this film is very deceptive. And when we start to think about it, we can see that, you know, not only is he thinking about questions of climate change, air pollution and drought, but then later, you know, another cloud is very obviously a smokestack. And so then there's the question of the status of industry in California. And this was one case where extra information from Benning really was crucial for me in kind of unfolding the bigger history that resides in that image, because he told me specifically what town this smokestack was in. Um, and so then in the book, I was able to kind of look at the history of that town but also in you know, relation to the fact that Benning films smokestacks over and over and over again throughout his career. Um, so I think you know, there's also, a, a, it's not about saying that the film isn't about light and time and it isn't about formal kind of experimentation because it is, but I think that we need to see it as much more than that. I'm talking to Erica Balsam. Uh, you're listening to The Screen Show on ABC Radio National. Erica has written uh, a monograph about uh, the film Ten Skies, which was made in 2004 by the avant-garde American filmmaker James Benning. And the book is part of a series called Decadent Editions, uh, published by Fireflies Press. Uh, ten monographs, about ten films from the 2000s. And Erica, I noticed that you write about this. You, you you observe that this is a film that's perhaps amongst the least written about of Benning's work. Is is that partly because on on this sublime surface of these ten shots, these ten ten minute shots of clouds, perhaps a lot of people get lost in that formalism and think maybe there's not much more to it than that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there are other films of his, and from around the same period that offer the critic looking to talk about these questions of land, politics, and so on, they offer much more, much more immediately. Um, whereas Ten Skies, in a way, one might think there's not a whole lot to say there. There are people who have written about it, for sure, and I don't want to, to overlook them. Scott McDonald, in particular, has written wonderfully about this film. Um, but I did choose it in part because I also thought it would be an especially challenging film to write about. I think it places a different kind of demand on the critic, perhaps, than um, other films by Benning and certainly other uh, kind of art house narrative films. Yeah, well, you think about the California trilogy, which is also screening the weeks after this film, Ten Skies, screens at Acme in Melbourne much easier films to relate to, I think, you know, um, as I think I've mentioned, you know, Mexican itinerant workers toiling in fields, a, a shot of a jail. They're, I mean, it's the concerns of Benning in this still minimalist film are a lot more explicit, I think. But the thing I love about this book and I love about this series is that it does get critics like yourself to really show, I think, in, in, in a way that's very um, virtuosic, a kind of rhetorical skill 
um, or, or at least the skill of sort of arguing a point about a film and, and drawing interesting tangents. And I want to ask you about the sound we hear in this film and how you discover that it's not sync sound. Because Benning talks about this as being a, a film shot out of his backyard, you know, pointing the camera up at the at the sky and just shooting, you know, and, and it's very much not that. Yeah, Benning is actually a hilarious person. And his body of work has many jokes in it. And 10 Skies might seem to not have them, but in fact, they are there. And there's a little kind of lie at the end of the film where a title card says it's shot in Valverde, California. That's mostly true. It's not entirely true. Um, And in many of the published descriptions of the film um, at the time of its release, you see critics saying, you know, he just shows us the sky and like records what's happening around. And that's not also the case. And there were other critics at the time who I think were told by Benning or who found out, you know, from interviews that in fact, all of the sound in this film is asynchronous sound, meaning that it was recorded at a different time and place than the image. And so Benning is also creating in some cases these sort of strange combinations. Now, I think you know to most viewers perhaps, and certainly to me when I first saw it, it would not be obvious that the match between sound and image is a false one. Um, but um, for instance, there's one shot where we see clouds moving upward. And if you know about clouds, as I sort of came to do in the course <laughs> of this research, that upward movement tells us that these are being pushed up um, by air next to a mountain. So this is a a specific kind of cloud formation that occurs in mountainous regions. Meanwhile, what we hear on the soundtrack are farm laborers. So if you really were smart about it in Spanish. And so if you really were smart about it, you might begin to think that here we have a divide between Northern California and Southern California playing itself out in the relation between sound and image. But I particularly like what you say about a later shot where we hear gunshots and it conjures all sorts of things which you talk about in the book and it's one of the the most, I I think, the richest tangents in the book and I don't mean tangent in a kind of pejorative sense where you talk about how obviously there's something ethereal about the subject matter here, these 10 shots of clouds in the air but it relates to the way that it relates to all sorts of things. I mean, the smoke from the Twin Towers, violence, death from above, drones, satellite-guided missiles. I mean, this is what you suggest we start to be invited to contemplate by the time the mm-hmm. film gets towards its end. I think it's a wonderful observation. Tell me a bit more yeah. about that. So um, the... The gunshot sound is actually reused from another film Benning made immediately prior to 10 Skies called 13 Lakes. And so there we could imagine that, you know, Benning fans would be seeing these films perhaps back to back and they would in fact remember this sound. But in 13 Lakes, it sounds like, you know, a hobbyist hunter out shooting some birds or something, which is perhaps not a wonderful thing, but it's not so, so disturbing. Whereas in 10 Skies, the way the sound is reused becomes really unsettling. And so I decided to sort of provide a descriptive account of the experience of watching this shot and then to link it to a statement that Benning made um, in the press at the time the film was released. He said that 10 Skies was an anti-war film. 
And this seems like a very strange kind of remark to make about a film that is 10 skies. So I started to think, okay, well, what could that possibly mean? And I wasn't interested so much in tracing it back to what he himself meant. I was interested in kind of spinning it out, you know, to a range of associations that went beyond perhaps what he would have intended. And it's interesting to note that this is a film made in 2004. And so it's really a film, you know, that is part of the war on terror moment um, in the United States and a moment when drone warfare was beginning to be used very covertly by the American government. And um, we have in the film insistently a view from below you know, a grounded view from earth. And I started to think about how this is a sort of inversion of the view from above that we associate with drone warfare and with a certain kind of epistemological and literal violence of taking the world as a target. You've spoken to James Benning for this book. Um, I've, I've had him on the show and I've met him briefly, but how would you describe him as a filmmaker? I mean, I mentioned in the introduction, of course, and everyone always mentions that he has training as a mathematician, but he, would you describe him as an intuitive filmmaker? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the thing that always gets repeated about Benning is that he devotes himself to looking and listening. And this was the name of a class that he taught at Cal Arts for many years. And so I think there is, you know, a real sense of attunement to the world that marks his practice. Um, but another thing to say about Benning is that um, he is obsessed with self-taught artists. And you know, for him, the, the, the figures that he sort of admires and looks up to are not you know, the great masters. They are really um, individuals working outside of institutional structures who feel kind of driven by something within them to make a certain kind of art. And they often really devote themselves to a very specific project and pursue it over a long period of time. And Benning has made a number of works that explicitly reference his interest in these kind of outsider self-taught artists. And I think he conceives of himself as sort of like following in that mode. Um, where art making is a kind of process of doing and it's inseparable from one's own life. Um, it's not a professionalized endeavor. Of course, it also is, um, but not, not primarily. And finally, for people who are lucky enough to go along to the screenings and uh, of his various films, but the screening of Ten Skies in Melbourne is also about uh, launching your book. You mentioned in the book something about the concept of uh, cultural vegetables, which is a concept I don't like either. But you also say that it's not necessarily a fun film. What would you say to people, you know, coming to experience this Benning film for the first time and maybe any Benning film for the first time? I think that one just needs to be open. You know, there's a very different filmmakers than Benning. Josh and Benny Safdie um, have said, you know, cinema now is the only place where you can be offline. You know, and there's a sense that when you go to the cinema, you give yourself up to a different kind of temporality. And I think Ten Skies is doing exactly that, but in a much more extreme way, perhaps, than other kinds of filmmaking. So it doesn't demand any specialized knowledge or anything like that. I think it's really just about giving oneself over 
to a different kind of temporal and perceptual experience. You know, let your mind wander, see where it goes. That's what the work is. You know, it's, it's a work kind of predicated both on paying close attention to detail, but also to drifting a little bit. And I think it's very rare in our lives where we actually get the chance to do that. And so there's something really luxurious, in fact, about spending that 100 minutes um, in front of the screen. And you don't really know where your mind is going to take you. And I think that that's something very, very precious. Well, on that note, a wonderful endorsement. And, and do pick up a book, uh, pick up a copy of uh, the Ten Skies monograph as well after you've seen the film or maybe even before. If you can get your hands on it, perhaps you won't be able to. Um, but on that note, thank you, uh, Erica Balsam. Thank you. That's Erica Balsam, who is a film scholar over at King's College in London. She's the author of, uh, as I've said, the new monograph on James Benning's Ten Skies, which is published by Fireflies Press. Now, the Ten Skies book launch and screening of the film happens at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, uh, on Friday the 4th of June, 6pm uh, start. 13 Lakes, the other film we mentioned, will be screening on the same weekend, Sunday the 6th of June at 4pm. And then you uh, are able to see the California Trilogy as well. All three films are screening on Sunday the 13th of June, the following week, uh, starting at 1.30pm. And all of those films are 16mm prints. So you're seeing them as they should be seen. You're listening to The Screen Show on ABC Radio National. Stella, it's been so long. You know, I kept staring at you at the party and then it came to me. That's Estella from school. It's not Estella. That's the past. I'm Cruella. Okay, if you were listening to last week's show, you will have heard my interview with the director of Cruella, Craig Gillespie. And you would have heard that uh, I couldn't give you an opinion on the film as it was under review embargo. So here goes in the minutes we have left. For those who didn't listen, Cruella is the origin story of the villain Cruella de Vil from 101 Dalmatians. The film is a kind of stew of gothic and swinging London influences. It's about an orphan, played by Emma Stone, who finds a mentor in an evil fashion designer, played by Emma Thompson. It's like The Devil Wears Prada, reimagined as a late Harry Potter film with a 70s teen rebel soundtrack. Cruella's best friends are two pickpockets who she's lived with in a dusty loft throughout her tween and teen years, a kind of surrogate family that's a vision as innocent as Mary Poppins and sits, I think, awkwardly with the film's much nastier Shakespearean story, which is full of bitter resentments, cruelty and even a murder. Cruella, the film, trades a lot on anger and cattiness, but it struggles to find somewhere to channel all this energy. It's not a violent comic book adaptation, so there aren't fireballs and bullets. It tries for a heist movie momentum, but it ends up being over-reliant on camp theatrics that fall flat, grand entrances at parties, frocks that turn heads, menacing glances from across crowded rooms. It's all a bit like an uninspired drag show. Emma Stone is miscast, I think. She struts through the film trying her best but failing, frankly, to make all the vampy posturing and menacing dialogue seem convincing. Cruella is also a tribute to British pop culture, from androgynous late 60s and 70s style to punk to, uh, well, there's even a quadrophenia scooter festooned with mirrors that appears. But I think it's more high street than street. 
a lot of effort has gone into making this and it mostly misses the mark until the very end when the angst and the anger finally delivers some kind of catharsis and a reason for being. Too late for me, I think. And I put a lot of these problems down to the structure of the script more than the direction. Cruella is in cinemas everywhere. My big studio movie recommendation this week, and it surprised me, is Zack Snyder's Las Vegas zombie romp Army of the Dead, a candy-coloured, pitch-black satire full of inventive kills, unpredictable twists, at least for me, and some arrestingly tender moments of straight drama, most of them thanks to the Man Mountain and former professional fighter Dave Bautista. Who would have thought that? He leads a team of mercenaries into zombie territory on behest of a Japanese gangster, played by Hiroyuki Sanada, and uh, he makes wearing reading glasses with a rubber lanyard look tough. Army of the Dead is a blood-soaked delight. Uh, It survived a sex abuse scandal during production as well, uh, and it had to replace uh, Chris D'Elia with uh, queer comic Tig Notaro via some seamless computer stitching, and she's great in it. Army of the Dead, it is screaming out for your attention, screaming, in fact, over at Netflix. And I'd say, heed the zombie call. How precisely do we do the zombie killing? Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Is there anybody else here who hasn't killed a zombie? Well, we all know the basics. Zombies, shamblers, the undead, whatever you want to call them. When it comes to killing them, it's all about the brain. If one comes at you, shoot it in the brain. It's that simple. Any questions? Yes. What if I took a big rock and smashed it into the head? Would, would that work? Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that also, that'd still be targeting the brain, so that would work. Copy that. I'm Jason DeRosso. This has been The Screen Show. I'll see you next week. Some men are prone to misadventure. Questions of guilt aren't always clear Some men run from a fate they can't avoid All men choose the path they walk You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.